<laughs> Welcome to Twig number 213. This is the last episode of 2022. How everyone's, how is everyone doing? I'm here with Eric and Laura today. Go ahead. Laura, talk to me. What, what's, what's, the, what's the furniture status? We need a chair, right? Still? Do you want to hear the saddest thing ever? So I ordered these chairs that were supposed to arrive this week, and now they've been backordered to July. Mm. I'm canceling them. It's done. I'm getting different chairs. Just get something temporary. Yeah. I'll send you something. Oh, great. All right. Let's see. Uh, oh, I have one basketball update. We went to the uh, the super team thing in Arizona, right? The, it's called Made Hoops. And we went three and one, and we actually really gave the best team of the of the whole thing a run for its money. We only lost by one. But Jacob got sick the second day, so he didn't even play those games. But uh, nonetheless, um, they're crushing it. And uh, seventh grade basketball. There were like literally four guys on this 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 super this other team that could dunk in seventh grade. <laughs> it was insane. It was insane. Um, awesome. That was really fun though. So we go back in a month to LA. Um, I had a correction on VR. Oh, all right. So <laughs> sorry, I should have wrote this one down. My but one of my clients who I've had, I swear to God, I must have had him for eighteen years or something insane. Like he's literally paid my way, my kid's way through private school at this point. And so when he gives me a criticism about the podcast, I have to listen and respond. So what his, he said, and other people have said this to me before, is I speak in absolutes, right? And I always say, oh yeah, this, this is never going to work or never going to happen or whatever else. And he's like, and, and what he's suggesting is that I try to like position it in a different way, you know, like have a time horizon, right? So like, you know, VR, for instance, is never going to work is not the right expression. VR is not going to work in the next five to 10 years. Maybe 10 to 20 years, there'll be something around VR. But you can't just nip it completely, holistically, forever and ever and ever. All right. So I have done that in the past, but maybe I should be more cognizant of it when I say it's mice nuts and it's never going <laughs> to mount to anything. But I do believe for VR and streaming, I'm going to say a 10-year time horizon no bueno, not happening, not interesting, I don't care, not material, right? Anything above that, okay, maybe, it might happen. All right, so I want to put that there. But things like, um, uh, uh, what is it? Oh. No, actually, I would say the same thing for, uh, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> Competitive gaming, maybe. Maybe 10 to 20 years, something will happen there. But anyway, I will do be better. I will be better and not speak so absolutes. That's my goal. That can be your New Year's uh, that's resolution. It. That's my New Year's resolution. <laughs> that's a noble. That's a that's a worthy goal, Eric. I, 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 I uh, thank you I very applaud, much. I applaud that uh, aspiration. Um, oh, did you want to talk about Istanbul? Oh yes. Okay. Uh, Mishka makes wants to make sure that we t- tell you about an absolutely massive, epic event in Istanbul starting in the first week in the first week of March. Last time it was big, but this is going to be absolutely huge and bougie, is what he put in his, his note. Um, basically, twice the size and uh, even more prestigious game professionals will be there, including myself, Mr. Seifert, and even Laura will join us in Istanbul for good times. Um, so put it on your calendar. Make sure... If you're in the region, or if you come to the region from wherever you are, it's a quick flight from Europe, I think. It is. Um, it's going to be absolutely epic. Epic. Uh, run by uh, Google. 
So the Google Istanbul 2023 event is in effect. So mark your calendar. Thank you very much. Just, just to clarify, I'm a, I'm a maybe. I want to come. It's a long flight. Hard to be away for a week. Uh, I'm going to do my best to, to try to be. Oh, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. You're going to come. I hope. Uh, we'll All see. Right. I, my wife's uh, going to be the decision maker on that one. This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make just a quick uh, point um, about the venture market right now for game studios primarily, but kind of, I mean, I'm less connected to the sort of more generalist uh, categories, but I want to, I want to make a point to all the gaming company founders out there Um as they navigate this moment, this is like a, 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 I would, I would say that this is a very challenging venture market at the moment. And I haven't, I haven't seen term sheets pulled, but um, I think it's probably like the worst time for raising money for games that I've ever seen. And that's more acutely profound in web three gaming. Um, but across the board, it's just a very difficult moment for raising money for games. Um, you, should not wait uh, until you're almost out of cash to try to think about how you're going to get more cash. Uh, you should have a plan um, that ideally, you know, materializes cash for you six months plus before you need it. Uh, if you're trying to raise money 
with a month or two months of cash left. Like, given the environment, it's going to be tough. Given that it's the holidays, it's going to be impossible. So I think any founder would be wise and prudent to look at their cash situation and to come up with some kind of plan to make sure that things don't ever get to the point where you've only got six months of cash left. Um, because in this environment, raising a round or doing a bridge or whatever, an extension is going to be tough to pull off. I think even within like a six month time frame. I think it's, it, this is a, we're, we're just facing like a very, very icy, uh, uh, you know, non-compliant environment for raising money. So that, that would be just something that I would, I would, uh, suggest everyone to take very seriously is to look at your cash position and don't let yourself get into a situation where you've got less than six months of cash in the bank, because I think raising around in this environment takes probably six months or more. Um, and and I hope uh, I hope people take this to heart and take it seriously, because this is a, just a very difficult environment for raising money right now. End of end of speech. <laughs> All right. Platika, what are we doing there? All right. Platika update. So the company has confirmed that it's laying off 15% of its staff. So it's another layoff report. They currently employ 4,100 people. So the redundancies will impact about 615 people. As a refresher, Playtica laid off 250 employees from its offices in LA, Montreal, and London in May. TechCrunch also noted that three titles will be sunset, merge stories by Jelly Button, Dice Life, and Ghost Detective. Playtica's biggest revenue games, as a reminder, according to Data AI, are Bingo Blitz, Slotomania, Solitaire Grand Harvest, and June's Journey. I have a couple thoughts on this. Um, I was actually I was quite sad to see the news. I've been playing merge stories, and there's aspects of it I've really enjoyed. And there's a couple call-outs of interesting mechanics I wanted to make. Um, they've introduced merging two different pieces. In most merge, merge games, you merge two or more of the same items, Um and they've they've kind of turned that on its head and introduced something that I haven't seen that I haven't seen before. And merge stories is also a raid mechanic, so you need you need troops. And to create these troops, you basically take a townsfolk and a weapon, and then you you merge them together to create basically a, a, a warrior. And then later in the game, you have these warriors, and you can merge them with, which I think is quite funny. You can merge them to create things like centaurs. And to get that, you take like a top level warrior and you merge it with a spear and a horse, which I thought was quite cute. Um, one other aspect I thought was interesting with this game, uh, with the raids, and this is my hypothesis, is that when you raid, you raid a map. And I, I believe, I don't know for sure, I have not checked with the developer, but these maps are somehow templatized or procedurally generated. And I think and if that's true, then I think it's a great way to reduce content load. Um, so I'd love to confirm if anyone knows, that would be, I'd, I'd love to know. Um, but I thought it was a very clever way if they did do this to manage the content pipeline because it's a, it's a crucial part of the game. Um, also, when I, the early game that I, that I did manage to get through, they, I thought they, they balanced their resource economy uh, quite well. That is a, that's a slippery slope for merge games. You got to be really careful how you balance, you balance the entire game, but especially the early game. Um, if anything, I felt progress was a bit too slow because, because I wanted to play more. I had a quick look at performance from also from Data AI. It looks like it's been in soft launch for about a year. Uh, they by downloads, uh, they seem to have turned on marketing September of the, this year. The revenue per download looked comparable to Merge Dragons, um, but it was about a third of Merge Mansion. 
Revenue was declining a bit. I imagine they turned down spend to try to optimize the game. But since it's being sunset, it looks like they couldn't quite uh, turn around the KPIs that they wanted to hit. Quite, I was very disappointed. I wanted to talk about merge stories because I liked, I liked that they took the merge mechanic and, um, and basically mashed it up with a couple different new things, uh, things we've seen in other games. And I, I was hoping that uh, this, I would have seen this game kind of flourish. So play Tika update. Yeah, I, I uh, my, my my quick take on this is basically out of all the out of a lot of the companies in the in the in mobile space, they've held up relatively well compared to competitors from a revenue overall revenue perspective. And and but the profitability is starting to suffer because I think you know obviously UA costs are going up to maintain these levels of revenue, um, and this game probably just didn't fit their their <laughs> rubric of what success looks like. From from as, I, as we've talked about before, um, and so in order for them to get stay whole, they have to reduce costs and, and reduce overhead, and and in this this will be like kind of the norm, I think, for mobile game companies for the next two or three years until this uh, the UA Ragnarok is over, um, and uh, you know people start to figure things out. Um, yeah, it's kind of sad. I mean, Playtika is a great company; they're a really well managed company, but. Uh, 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 may, they may be in a position where they need to diversify outside of mobile um, in order to like do that, but that would cost even more money and reduce even more margin. So, anyway, it's a very complicated, tough spot to be in right now because of uh, what Apple's done. So um, we'll see what, how they respond and how they uh, get out of this. The stock has been absolutely just decimated; it's down to like nine bucks um, from I think a high of around thirty. Um, and then there also there's a little bit of complexity in terms of ownership structure in this this company and, and some issues with some shareholders. So it, it's it's a much more complicated story. But nonetheless, they they're probably laying up people off to uh, reduce costs to keep margins whole um, and hopefully reinvest. So we'll see how it goes. Just a fun fact: as I look at these names, Mar- um, Playtika and AppLovin are worth roughly the same right now uh, in terms of market cap. <laughs> play teak wow yeah app loving is jesus dude that thing is just gone is almost gone, gone to zero <laughs> play, play teak market cap as of right now is 3.33 billion app loving market cap as of right now is 3.97 billion app loving was worth 40 billion at debut if i remember correctly that's wild <laughs> dude from 94 dollars to 10 bucks yeah was yeah. yeah that's app loving yeah um. Oh, do you want me to cover this FTC thing? Yes, I me? keep putting them in for you. <laughs> oh. All right. Uh, okay. So here's my current take on the FTC thing, and, and, and this Activision merger. I, I I literally have been on the phone talking about this for the last like week. So uh, I'm going to try to summarize this as as much as e- as, as as easy as humanly possible. First of all, I was wrong in the sense that. I thought it was like a 20% chance this deal doesn't happen. I think now it's more like a 70% chance, 60 to 70% chance this deal doesn't happen. So in that case, I was wrong. What I was right about was that the UK would be the one that would would ultimately cancel this deal, which I think is likely going to happen. So here's what's happening in my view. Anyway, the FTC, who's being run by this 33-year-old woman, Letlina, right, is going after Microsoft for this deal, and they're suing him. They have absolutely no chance in God's 
green earth to make this happen because the rules in the books would not support any type of, of stopping of a vertical in a uh, vertical deal like this. Having said that, she's 33 and she wants to make a name for herself and she wants to basically change the rules associated with antitrust, particularly as it relates to these big tech bro companies. Um, and she's looking for like the next 20 to 30 years to build her legacy. So she's bringing these absolutely ridiculous uh, suits against Microsoft on this deal from the perspective of what she can win. She doesn't care if she wins. She wants to set precedent. And that's why she's bringing these cases to court right now. Um, and then hopefully these actions will help change the underlying laws so that they can really have some teeth when it comes to these antitrust uh, 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 bleh, antitrust um, cases. Having said that, what this is, what interesting about this is that this actually brings more firepower to the deal to things that are happening in the UK and the EU, right? Particularly the UK, which this may actually push them over the edge. And and the way the timing works is that the March is when the UK is going to make its decision. This this case won't even happen until June at the earliest next year. So it is very likely that the UK is going to block this deal, um, which I think is freaking great for the industry. Um, all right. There was also a little bit of confusion on one point that I've made in the past um, and that was brought up in the uh, FTC lawsuit about the fact that <laughs> that uh, in the ZeniMax deal, they made promises. I, I, I think I alluded to the fact that they made promises that they would keep uh, ZeniMax deals on all platforms. Right. But but what happened was after the deal was closed, they immediately went exclusive with ZeniMax titles. So where I was wrong on this is that they didn't make the promise that they would do it. They alluded to the fact that it didn't make, no, they didn't allude. They articulated the fact that it didn't make sense financially for them to make Bethesda ties deals exclusive. And what the UK has said, or sorry, the EU has said is that that's, they did not say it was, it was a requirement to keep those titles um, on other platforms. Um, and that, they felt that, and this is their words, is that they felt that any type of ZeniMax title being exclusive would not have a significant impact on competition and that, um, and that there's a large array of additional content out there that would be available. So this, doesn't, this is not a requirement for this deal to go through. So that was the point that they were, they were making to, um, to the FTC's uh, uh, mention of this in the um in their in their lawsuit against uh, Microsoft. So my point was is that they actually said this in in the in the document that they would that they would keep it wouldn't make sense financially to do that just to do oh my I'm totally losing it here <laughs> to position this but ultimately they didn't do that because they don't give a shit about um the money that they lost the you know billion dollars that they lost right not having it on Sony's platform. So anyway what I would also argue is that I don't think the Bethesda deal is, is ba as bad for competition as something like Call of Duty. Call of Duty is a juggernaut, you know, last 15 years, top game. And not only from the perspective of sales, but also from the perspective of engagement in terms of engagement after the, after the, after the uh, release. And so I think Call of Duty is a different animal when it comes to that and it is anti-competitive. So anyway, I guess my, my current thinking is that, like, I don't know if this deal is going to happen. Um, it's, it's seeming less and less likely and most likely the UK would be the one to block it in my opinion. Did that make sense? I'm can, totally Can rambling. I maybe, uh, let me, can I just read what, what was, 
what was said and, and, and why the EU disputed it. So in the FTC suit, in the yeah. FTC complaint, they say Microsoft decided to make several of Bethesda's titles, including Starfield and Redfall, Microsoft exclusives, despite assurances it had given to European antitrust authorities that it had no incentive to withhold games from rival consoles. And then, so this is the complaint by the FTC just uh, published last week. And then the EU actually kind of rebutted that. And it said, um, Microsoft didn't make any commitments to EU regulators not to release Xbox exclusive content following its takeover of ZeniMax. Um, so basically the FTC's assertion there was totally wrong uh, that, that, they, that Microsoft had misled the EU regulators and said, okay, we... No, see, okay. So this is the this is the point that I was trying to make, and maybe I'm just not thinking of it clearly in my own head. Is that they said that in the document, they said specifically that it does not make sense financially for Microsoft to release for to not release Bethesda content on Sony's platforms. Yeah. I mean, that was in the document, right? But the difference here, the legal ease or the legal thing, is that regardless of what they said in that document, uh, the EU never required them to keep titles on other platforms that's what the, that's what the eu is saying not that they didn't position it the same the, the way that they suggested that that you know well, I'm, I think, I'm sorry now I'm, so I'm, i think it's two, two separate issues though because like it it i so it's it's like so the the financial incentive or the financial logic is one thing and that's what microsoft is saying now too by the way that like it wouldn't make sense for us to take call of duty to xbox exclusive because we'd be losing so much money right i know but but but, yes. but, but the other thing here though is is what the EU is, and this is, I, I was just reading the, the complaint by the FTC, by the way, that was just a quote from the complaint. So what the FTC is asserting yeah. is that Microsoft misled the EU regulators when it completed that, that uh, acquisition. And what the EU said, they, they responded, they get, that was an official EU response, was that, no, 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 Microsoft never told us that, they, Microsoft never committed to making those titles. They never the, committed, but they said it. So they did mislead them. But they didn't commit to not allowing them the titles. Do you know what I'm saying? It wasn't so like, required. That's, it, it was not. It wasn't required. It wasn't required. But they still, but they still misled by putting that in the document. It, look, okay, let me just say for this: let's assume for a fact there's no way in God's green earth they were ever not going to have exclusive titles on Microsoft's platform, Bethesda. So all along they wanted Bethesda's titles to be exclusive on their platform, right? Let's that that's the assumption that I'm sure, making. Yeah, of of course. course, why would they buy yeah. it? Either what doesn't make sense, right? And so by putting that in the document that went to the EU, saying it doesn't make sense for us to release games, uh, Bethesda games exclusively on our platforms, right? Like, why would they say that? Besides to mislead the the the, the, the EU body, right? There's no point in saying that. Why didn't they just say yes? We're going to have exclusive titles on. Our, we're going to make these titles exclusive because we want them on our platform. Because it, 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 it doesn't make sense. It's positioning the deal, right? And so, but they were not required. So that, that's the difference. I think I probably alluded to the fact that they were required. By putting this in the document, they likely were required not to have uh, exclusive titles. But that's not the case. They just alluded to it, and they basically said it. And so I, I don't think the FTC was all off base with, 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 with what they were trying to position. I don't even think they ever said that they were required. They just basically said they alluded to it. But anyway, uh, so my point is, all along, is that Call of Duty is going to be exclusive in some way on Microsoft's platform because it doesn't make sense to do the deal otherwise, right? And so that is likely going to happen. No matter how much assurances they have, you throw it on fucking Nintendo platforms, throw it on Ouya, throw it on fucking, you know, 
Google Stadia, which is already dead. Yeah, we'll, we'll sign a deal with Google, even though Stadia is not even around. I mean, who gives a fuck, right? It doesn't all matter. Ultimately, Call of Duty is going to be exclusive on the platform, and, and FTC knows it, right? And I think, I, think, I think the UK, people in the UK believe it too. So anyway, and that's not good. That, and that, and that, I think that is anti-competitive, frankly. We'll see. Is that clear as mud? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't know. I, but you could just read the statements, right? I mean, the statements are pretty short and, and clear. A- anyway, sure. I mean, I, I agree with you that it wouldn't make sense. To, I don't understand why Microsoft would want to buy this unless it was to make Call of Duty exclusive. I, but I think there's other justifications. But my big issue with the FTC, though, is what they're saying now is, like, this would be anti-competitive in including the market for cloud gaming. And it's like, well, there's no market for cloud gaming right now. Microsoft is kind of leading the pack. And so, you know, if, if I, I just, I think it's, to my mind, it's like an abuse of the concept of antitrust to say this company will basically invent the market for this and therefore become a monopoly in that market that no one sufficiently invested into to even be able to compete in. And therefore we must stop them from being able to do that. Right. Like that feels like a weird way to just stifle (laughs) innovation, not to prevent uh, you know, because first of all, it's not illegal to be a monopoly. It's a, it's illegal to abuse monopoly power to protect your market position. Anyway, I just, it just feels weird to say, look, there's no market for cloud gaming. If there would potentially be a market for cloud gaming, it's because Microsoft is investing so much money into building it. Therefore, we must stop them from building it because if they did build it, they'd be the only participant in it. I, I, I don't disagree with that. That's ridiculous. And I think a lot of people have pointed that out. Like, yeah, the FTC complaint is ridiculous yeah. on its on its face to some degree. Um, but the point of it, again, is not to argue the merits of, of antitrust. It's basically just to make an example of them to continue this dialogue and try to set precedent so that they have more teeth when it comes to these bigger fish that they need to fry, you know, which includes Google, Apple, Facebook, and everyone at TikTok, whatever, right? And so she's trying to create her own legacy. Dude, she's 33 years old. She's a child, right? She's brilliant. And she's about ready to like go on a 23, 30-year career against tech, you know? And so like, and so I don't know. I think a lot of people have criticized her for what she's doing, but I think ultimately something needs to be done because clearly nothing has changed over the last 20 years. Um, and, and we're still kind of in this limbo land when it comes to antitrust and all this tech stuff. And that's a whole other subject to get into, but nonetheless, it's going to be up to the EU and the UK and we'll, we're, we're going to see in uh, March, hopefully we'll see. All right, moving on. Holy moly. That was too much. I did a terrible job. I will admit first time, but, <laughs> but I, I'm trying. All right, moving on. hard part of selling your video game? Well, that's simply letting the community and players know it exists. That's particularly true if you're about to launch a new game and don't have an established brand yet. What's the solution? Well, it's creating your own dedicated online presence that lets you connect directly with players, gather signups for your email campaigns, and communicate things like updates about your game's development process or new features. You can build an online storefront, grow your community, run pre-orders and subscription programs, and generally bring in more long-term revenue by selling game keys, virtual goods, or bundles. Especially for indie developers, pre-orders are underutilized lifeline but any size studio can benefit from them. That time block before the game is fully released, 
its prime opportunity for building awareness and getting early stage pre-launch revenue, which can be critical for sustaining your project throughout the development cycle and helps you forecast your game's first year sales. Exola can help you accomplish this with Exola Game Sales. Want to know more about how to get started generating more revenue for your game? Visit exola.pro slash game sales or go to the link in the podcast description below. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com benchmarks now for more info. Moving on, Brawl Stars. So Brawl Stars removes loot boxes, exclamation point. So Supercell released a video update, and as a side comment, I love the effort they put into their videos with the game lead in a cupcake shirt and a matching cupcake fascinator. And for, for those of you, a fascinator is what they usually wear in horse races, the, the all the women usually wear. It's like a, like a piece or some sort of decorative thing that they put on their head. Um, so Supercell is removing all loot boxes from Ball Stars, according to their game lead. We're making this change for a few reasons, mainly moving away from probabilities and chance, which will make things more fair and predictable for you, the player. It also gives you clear and exciting goals every time you play the game. So they're overhauling the reward systems in the game, including introducing um, a reward track called Star Road, which will allow players to um, get new brawlers, uh, unlock characters, and an in-game currency called credits. So this is all what is going to be replacing the loot boxes. Um, last two years ago now, almost two years ago, uh, Brawl Stars was Supercell's fourth title to pass $1 billion in lifetime revenue. So opening this up to comments, I was thinking about why, why did this change happen? Definitely clear rewards for players as Supercell sites. And I think it also likely ties into the scrutiny that loot boxes have been under by various regulatory bodies. Um, if, as a reminder, they came into, under review in the UK in July, and one outcome was a working group looking into how they can improve, uh, how they can improve loot boxes, quote unquote, without adding leg- legislation. So this is making sure that uh, people like children are protected. The UK's DS, uh, sorry, DCMS is expected to provide an update by Q1 next year on its working group that is mitigating the risk of harm to children. Uh, Washington Post wrote that if the UK does decide to regulate the loot boxes, they believe that it's likely going to put age restrictions on them, which um, would be would be tricky. 
And one of the most recent twigs, we talked about Australia making loot boxes, um, uh, making them for adults only. And then a couple other uh, loot box issues, which I think also support why this is a good, probably a good direction that Supercell is taking. In Belgium in 2018, they declared loot boxes in violation of gambling legislation and called for all loot boxes that can be purchased with real money to be removed. And in the Netherlands, there's mounting government support to ban loot boxes outright. Um, And then in response, Valve has restricted loot boxes for players in Belgium and the Netherlands. Thoughts? Ah, you know, I, I, I... I think I have problems these days. I'm out there just sniping people on LinkedIn constantly <laughs> about nonsense. And so Philip put this thing out there, Philip Black, who is a very brilliant uh, uh, monetization designer. And, and, I, and my first reaction to this is like, okay, why are they actually doing this? Are they trying to preempt rules that are coming down the pipe from from governments? Maybe. That, that could be it. That would be smart, right? Like just get ahead of that. Or two... My uh, my quick flippant response is is that the game is basically tracking at an all time low, right? It's not it's not monetizing as well as it used to be. Maybe they're just trying to mix it up to see if they can you know get their groove back, you know? Like uh, I, I I think that's a little bit more likely. And um, and what I don't want, and I and I and I know I know what's his name, Philip was not doing this, but like I giving them accolades for removing loot boxes is kind of disingenuous, right? And so the flippant response I had for Philip's uh, thing was like, look, let me get this straight. A game that has taken $1.2 billion worth of kids' lunch money in the past four years using the most egregious or one of the most egregious forms of monetizations in the industry is now getting accolades for loot, for removing loot boxes because revenue is at an all-time low. <laughs> it's like, I don't give them any credit for like trying to be benevolent here with, with the loot box thing. They've clearly made quite a bit of money from loot boxes Um from children, but I'm half joking, right? But at the end of the day, I think it's more of a reaction to the game is not performing as well, and they want to see what what it looks like without loot boxes um, and more. I think they're more doing direct purchases, right? Direct purchase of a product, right? Yeah. Of, of characters, etc. Um, so anyway, I'm not sure. It'll be interesting, and I and and I think to Phillips, and I think what Phillips' point really was was like it'll be interesting to see what it's like, uh, what what. How, how revenue changes over time with, with uh, direct purchases versus loot boxes. So we will see. We'll keep tracking it. Eric, it seems very enthused today. Uh, no, I, uh, I, think he's, I, think, I think he's on holiday. No, I'm not, I, I kind of, but I just got an annoying uh, request, uh, so I'm pissed off. Uh, <laughs> un, unrelated to... Speaking of... Uh, loot boxes, yep. Speaking of annoying requests, Apple has now... <laughs> I, I, <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so the headline is Apple to allow outside app stores in overhaul spurred by EU laws. So this was a Bloomberg piece, uh, if I remember correctly. So basically, um, listeners might remember the DMA was codified into law, into EU law uh, back in February, I think, and it will go into effect soon. Uh, and Apple is, you know, preparing to comply. DMA was the legislation that that relates to um, competition, and then there's a separate one, the DSA, the Digital Services Act, that relates more to uh, data privacy and transparency. So basically, the DMA uh, prevents, you know, gatekeepers from um, uh, from disallowing alternative app stores, alternative payment methods. Basically, you can't 
run a closed ecosystem. You have to open it up uh, to, to participation with, with payments and distribution, right? So quoting from the article, software engineering and services employees are engaged in a major push to open up key elements of Apple's platforms, according to people familiar with the efforts. As part of the changes, customers could ultimately download third-party software to their phones, to their iPhones and iPads without using the company's app store, sidestepping Apple's restrictions and the up to 30% commission it imposes on payments. So one thing to point out here, and as a result of this article or as a result of the, this, this leaking um, that Apple is pre- preparing for this, which they have to, they have to comply in Europe, it's law. Um, uh, share price for Match Group jumped 10%, Bumble up 9%, so uh, Spotify up 10%. So investors are excited about this. They think you know these companies will be able to save the 30% by uh, being distributed through alternative app stores and, and, um, and billing directly. So a couple things, right? That enthusiasm is not warranted, in my opinion. I don't think people should be excited yet. I don't think we know enough about how this is going to be implemented because you probably remember, potentially from uh, you know a, a bunch of articles that I wrote about this, Apple has already signaled how they're going to handle alternative in-app payments. They have a policy active right now for dating apps in the Netherlands, right? And so I'm reading from their policy page about this. Um, it, the title is Distributing Dating Apps in the Netherlands, if you want to search for it. But let me just quote from this. Consistent with the interim relief ruling of the Rotterdam District Court, dating apps that are granted an entitlement to link out or use a third-party in-app payment provider will pay Apple a commission on transactions. Apple will reduce its commission by 3% on the price paid by the user, net of value-added taxes. This is a reduced rate that excludes value related to payment processing and related activities. Developers using these entitlements will be required to provide a report to Apple recording each sale of digital goods and content that has been facilitated through the App Store. This report will need to be provided weekly within 15 calendar days following the end of Apple's fiscal week. Right. So Apple already has a policy in place that I think they developed knowing that, you know, obviously knowing that the DMA would come into effect and they need a policy that they could apply worldwide that only reduces the commission by 3%. And we've discussed on this podcast why no developer would ever do that. Right. Because you reduce the commission by 3%. You've got to find your own alternative payments processor, which is Stripe, which which uh, charges a, a percentage of the price plus a fixed fee. Uh, on top of that. And then you've got to deal with the reporting, which is onerous, right? You've got to prepare this report every month to send to Apple. Now, I don't believe the DMA prevents Apple from doing this broadly in Europe. I don't think it prevents Apple from saying, well, look, you can have alternative in-app payments, right? Literally side by side with the iTunes payment, right? Not just linking to the web, but you can do, you can do that too. But, it, but whether you link to the web or you have alternative in-app payment right next to the iTunes payment, they're still going to take a cut. And it's going to be so high that it wouldn't make sense to ever go that route, right? So I don't think the DMA prevents that. And so if this is what the net result is, it's not going to change anything. No developer is going to do it. Even if they did, users are going to go with the option that's already got their credit card embedded, that's, that has the least friction, right? And that's the least scary, right? And so my sense is like, even if they open this up, for alternative in-app payments doesn't change too much. Now, opening up alternative app stores is different and that might have some kind of impact. But again, the app store is native on the phone. It's integrated on the phone when you get it. You've already got your credit card information stored there. Every app you want to use is already there. I could see like another big company like an Epic pushing the Epic's game store onto the iPhone and maybe they offer some incentives to make that an attractive place to go download games. But no, very few companies can do that. There's going to be a lot of friction to adoption. 
right? And then we're still not really sure how Apple is going to treat those third-party app stores. They're going to say, well, we've got to fully vet them for security compliance. And then maybe they could just vindictively block them using these arbitrary rules that they already use for the app store. So my sense is like this on the margins maybe opens up some optionality for consumers. I think in general, these are good laws that will probably, whatever the next big computing platform, if there is one, will benefit from. But my sense is this doesn't change too much within the mobile ecosystem. Yeah, or or it could be some crazy pop up that scares the bejesus out of the consumer. Well, that no, <laughs> but like, that's ex- proceed at your. That's what they do now. Proceed at your own risk. That's <laughs> yeah, I know. Proceed at your own. No, risk. let me read. Let me read the modal now in the dating apps in the Netherlands. And again, this is live. This is not theoretical. This exists, right? Uh, it's got to say your payment will be managed by the developer. You will no longer be transacting with Apple. All purchases in this app will be processed <laughs> by a service provider selected by the developer. The developer will be responsible for the payment methods and related features such as subscriptions or refunds. App Store features such as your stored App Store payment methods, subscription management, and refund requests will not be available. You've got to click, I understand. You've got to click, yeah. I understand. I want to do that. No one's going to do that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I, I, I keep, I, now I'm getting sniped on LinkedIn about, see what's happening? See, you're wrong, Eric. You're wrong. And I'm like, dude, you guys got to... The devil's in the yeah. details here, man. You can't just expect that they're going to be this benevolent dictator. Right. They're a dictator, right? It's like, stop it, right? So we'll we'll see what happens, how it evolves. I mean, it certainly is a loss on their side, but I just don't think things change materially anytime soon, and uh, expectations are probably a little bit out of whack. I think one person was saying, oh, yeah, see what's going to happen. See, this is going to impact Bitcoin and, and <laughs> give you know, a break. blockchain Shut gaming. <laughs> I'm like, you're, you're out of your fucking mind. You're out of your mind. Yeah. All of you. All of you are out of your I, mind. I think the, okay. the touchdown dances are premature, right? Let's wait and see. Yes, yes. We, I mean, after dealing with Apple for the last 20 years and how evil they are, right? You know <laughs> things are going to be bad. You think if you think, if they're going to be good? Right. You think they're going to yeah, be yeah. benevolent? I don't this think so. This time is different. I yeah. don't think so. Yeah, this time. <laughs> they're like, yeah, it's like, oh, I, sorry, I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> I was going to make a very inappropriate comment. Okay, moving on. Um, someone asked me to do this. I don't know if this is a really good idea at all because I think I'm going to piss off literally every single person in the audience um, to go over the Game Awards. Um, first of all, Jeff Keeley, who uh, has been at this for a long time, really has created an amazing show. I don't want to give him credit for uh, the game show, uh, this, this award show. It has become like the almost de facto place in which new games are announced, which is amazing. Now, I don't think he's done a particularly good job replacing E3. Um, and I'm hoping E3 comes back in a big way next year. But uh, but the Game Awards are like second to none in terms of a, of a show showcasing AAA content. So someone asked me to like go through some of the announcements and to um, you know see what I think and 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 what I think about the games that are that are being announced. Um, so in my fashion, I'm going from what I think will be the biggest games that were announced to the smallest games, <laughs> and, and why. Okay, so Laura. You're typing. Someone is That's typing. Me. Sorry, it's not sorry, me. sorry, sorry. Very loudly. Okay. Sorry. Um, so the first game that I think is going to be the biggest out of all things announced was uh, was uh, Diablo 4. Uh, Diablo 4 is going to be released supposedly June 2023, which is interesting timing. But this thing is going to be freaking massive, right? First of all, it's across three platforms, right? PC, console, uh, PS5, and Xbox. Um 
And they also have a longer term revenue plan with microtransactions and, and expansions. So I think this game could do, and I'm and, and basically my my time frame is basically within the twelve months. Let's say twenty five million is kind of my bogey for this game. Twenty five million units, huge. I mean, as big as Call of Duty, r- roughly, um, or even FIFA. FIFA is a little bit smaller. So uh, this is gonna be massive, right? So this is the biggest game. I love. Not that I, this game could be t- absolute crap, and it still would sell insane amounts of units because of how beloved this franchise is, how big Battle.net is. It will sell in Korea, it will sell in Japan, it will sell in the UK, U, UK, US, uh, uh, Europe, US. Um, anyway, that's the first game. The second game that I think will be the highest selling is Jedi Survivor. Um, so this one's a little bit tougher, but it, the quality is going to be really high. Um, but I, it's coming out in March uh, of 2023. Uh, the challenge... Oh, and it's across platforms. Or current gen, previous gen. So I'm thinking like 6 to 8 million units. Somewhere around there. Oh, it's sorry. Sorry, it's only on next gen t- consoles. So that limits its ability to, for upside because there's only a limited install base of next gen PS5, Xbox, Series X. So... That should be like six to eight million units. Next game is Street Fighter. So I don't know if anybody knows about the fighting genre, but the fighting genre was absolutely massive in the PDS2 era. Like we had like tons and tons of franchises that would come out um, every other year or so. Uh, there was Street Fighter, Tekken, Mortal Kombat, Soul Calibur, Dead or Alive, and I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of others. But now it's very niche, and I know people. This is where I'm going to get piss people off. It's like. This is a very, very niche genre now, right? The games come, like, for instance, I think it was like six years ago that a Street Fighter came. And, and, and they have a core contingent that continue to play it. And, you know, that, it is a big eSport in, in the Middle East and other places. So it, it is a, a, an evergreen game in that way. Like, there's people that continue to play it. But it's very small from a, from a product perspective. But the, because it's a, it hasn't been out for a long time, this game could do like six to eight million units as well. So I think this is this is going to be a big game for Capcom this year, uh, and that comes out first in June. I don't know. I didn't write it down. All right, the next game is Final Fantasy <laughs> 16. So this is like a beloved franchise that sells no matter what. I mean, it could be absolute crap and it'll sell, but I don't think it's going to be crap. It's going to be good, probably similar to 15. And I think, and if you guys have any comments on this, let me know. I don't know if you're familiar with any of this sh- stuff, to be honest. But so. But these idiots at Square Enix made this thing exclusive on PlayStation, which at least a timed exclusive, which doesn't make sense. But that limits the upside. But I think it could do at least four to five million units within the first 12 months um, and maybe more if it gets out on Xbox before uh, the end of the year. Uh, Yeah. Laura, oh, you got something? Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Um, I Initially, I was going to say, ooh, four to five minutes, million units is quite low because um, the Final Fantasy VII Remake and uh, Final Fantasy XV both performed better, but I, I just noticed that it is launching exclusively. Um, I want to add to it on the Final Fantasy franchise, but the, um, the Final Fantasy VII Remake Rebirth, which is part two, is also planned for next year. And I don't think. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think the remake sold less copies um, than fifteen. So I would probably agree with this order. Sixteen might be bigger than um, the remake, but let's see. Oh, and by the way, the, the notion that this thing is coming out in June and they just announced it is preposterous, <laughs> right? The, the Square Enix and the Final Fantasy team have never released a game on time. So, like, I, I would not. I would. I would. I, I would definitely vote on the over for that um 
I mean, no? I took a peek at the team. I mean, the team comes from the team on 16 came from 12 and 14. I have hope. Um, I believe it was, I think 15 was significantly delayed, but I think they had a lot of problems in development. If I remember correctly, do either of you? Yes. 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 I think there was a, oh, it was painful. There was like a GDC talk or the, the director that took over gave a talk on this and what he had to do to turn the game around. Um, so I'm hoping since yeah. so far I mean, that hasn't happened, it might be close to June release. Yeah, they're they're notoriously bad, but anyway, nonetheless, I, I, this will be a big game for the year, and I know the Final Fantasy fans are excited. They push for quality. Um, the next, <laughs> yeah, the next game is actually really interesting. Is uh, Ken Levine, who has been out of pocket for I think a decade, right? Um, initially, he was going out and doing indie work, and then he decided to come back and do AAA. Uh, and I still think he's uh, getting published by Take Two. Um, and he announced his first his be- first game back called Judas. And the only thing that was disappointing about it was it looks almost exactly like Bioshock. <laughs> so it's like, I, in some ways, that's good and bad depending on how you look at it. I think it's good for sales because I think it does what people want him to do is build amazing stories. I mean, the guy's a freaking genius, right? So, um, and a- everyone loves this guy. And so, I think the only limitation to this is the install base, right? I think this is another one of those eight to 10 million unit and it'll benefit from the fact that it's probably not coming out for a while. Um, but, uh, but this, this is going to be a relatively big game when it comes out. Uh, and, uh, Bioshock is actually coming out next year. Or sorry, yeah. Next year, uh, from another team, uh, that is not Ken Levine, uh, a sequel that's in Atlantis, I think. Uh, and so I think this will set it up well for, for, for a good performance. Um, generally speaking. So I don't know. Anybody excited about Ken Levine? No. All right. The next one is Suicide Squad. Uh, I'm not really sure about the broad appeal of the Suicide Squad and the characters that are in it, Um, but uh, the studio is clearly top-notch. This is the uh, guys that do uh, Batman. Um, But uh, it's next-gen PC only, which limits somewhat what it can do, but I think four to five million makes sense for this uh, for the first 12 months. Um, And then... And then from here, we kind of get into like the more narrow niche type games. <laughs> um, Armor Core five, 6, 5, 6, shit, Fires of Rubicon from From Software. Now, From Software can do no wrong at this point. Um, so I think they will get a lot of uh, kudos. Um, and, 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 but this is like a mech game, right? And mech games are old school, dude. That, since the old days of like uh, Fossa and uh, Mech Warrior, right? Um, they haven't really done all that well uh, over the past 15 years. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it could do maybe three to four million just because it's from, and it's probably going to be pretty good, but it's still mech. And I don't know how how big the audience are for mech. See, this is where I'm going to get myself in all kinds of trouble. I'm going to get so much hate for this. Okay. Death Stranding 2. Who gives a fuck, right? Death Stranding, <laughs> dude, this guy, the, Kojima is a genius, but he's a, he's a mad genius. And, the games just don't do well, right? I think the the first one did a few million, if that, at full price. The rest of it was like complete bargain basement. So this is going to go straight to the bargain basement, Jim. You know, and 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 it'll do well, like for a, a week, right? Um, but this shit's bizarre. No one understands what the fuck is going on. It's not interesting unless you're really a hardcore Kojima fan um, and a Metal, Metal Gear fan. So uh, not expecting much out of that. Plus, it's I think a PlayStation exclusive, if I'm not mistaken. So. Maybe 2 million units, three tops. Um, oh, and who knows when it's going to come out because this guy is notoriously bad in terms of getting game out. 
Um, Horizon Forbidden West, uh, the Burning Shores DLC. Uh, no one cares, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think this game is, did not do as well as they had hoped. Uh, actually, no, I, I know it didn't do as well as it hopes. It may have done five or six million units to date. And a rule of thumb for any type of DLC for a single-player game is around 30%, maybe 20 and 40 at the high end. So I'll give this 30%. It'll do like 2 million units, maybe. Uh, and it's huge. It's really small for such a big IP, and the cost of making these type of games uh, is pretty prohibitive. So other games that were announced, Tekken 8, um, another fighting game, very niche and dead franchise. Don't think that's going to do well. Cyberpunk 27.7 fan, literally nobody cares. Sorry, seriously, stop it. Um, uh, Hades 2, Baldur's Gate 3. Baldur's Gate 3 is interesting because it's such a fan favorite of old school PC people like myself. Um, but I just, this team, this game has been delayed so many times. I just don't think they're going to execute against it. Although it will do a couple million just because it's Baldur's Gate. Um, Warhammer 40,000, Space Marine 2. I think it's a great action game, but no one cares about Warhammer. So that's going to be really tough. Um, and then some other smaller stuff. Transformers reactivate uh, by splash damage. I think that is actually interesting, although I hate the Transformers IP. I, I just don't think it's a very good IP for gaming. Uh, but they, they're a good development team, and uh, some of the Transformers games did really well during the heyday. But uh, we'll see. So other stuff that was announced was a Mario movie, some stuff about the Mario movie, and, and, and other indie stuff, which was really interesting. But overall, like it was a really, 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 really good show. Um, and they had a lot of great games showcased and I think Jeff is doing a great job and something that if you're into AAA gaming, you should definitely watch every year. Um, all right. Anything else? Breath of the Wild 2. It probably wasn't announced in the, um, in the show you watched, but that's still coming out next year. Breath of the Wild 1 sold just under 30 million units. So yeah, I mean, it should be at least 15 million units in the first 12 months. Yeah. That's a no brainer. So my my assumption right now with uh, with uh, Nintendo is that they're going to come out with the next gen uh, Switch next year, mm-hmm. and not maybe not in time for the May launch of uh, Breath of the Wild two, but uh, but probably in holiday or may hopefully before that. But nonetheless, um, this will be their showcasing the tech of the next gen Switch, and uh, that will send these sales to the moon. You know, maybe they do 15, 20 million in the first year. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a big, big game. I thought it was cool that... Uh, Eric, do you... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I thought it was cool that Idris Elba is joining the cyberpunk universe. That's pretty cool. Oh, I didn't even I didn't see know, that. Yeah. I mean, I... Was he announced... a voice actor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's... Uh, yeah, he's he's going to... He's like the most... Ha- he's <laughs> he's like the most handsome British guy ever. <laughs> He is very he, handsome. He's going to play a U.S. veteran yeah. named Solomon Reed. What's What's funny about Idris Elba is I didn't know he was British. I didn't know he was English until because well, he he's, he plays a lot of characters with American accents. And so I think the only movies I'd ever seen him in were, were ones where he was playing an American. And I hadn't until recently I hadn't seen him in anything where he was actually using his natural accent. Anyway, uh, I thought that was cool. What were you about to ask, Eric? What did Oh, do you play console games? Yeah, all the time. I'm oh, uh, like, what do you play? I mean, right now I'm well. Right now I'm splitting my time between God of War, which is excellent, by the way. Um, what a just a beautiful game, well made, and uh, Warzone Two. Okay, all right, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Idris. Sorry, Idris did that Luther show. Did you ever watch? No, Luther? but yeah, that was on the BBC, right? And yeah, oh, that- dude, you gotta watch that. Oh my god, that show is great. My wife and I watched it. It's amazing. Dude, the guy's a badass. Yeah, um, he's a good actor. Yes, he he's a great actor. Uh, and uh, all right, well, I just just as a, as a, following up, uh, finishing off here. Oh, by the way, I did get I got my sweatshirt. I was trying to look for it. I couldn't find it, but it has. Uh, Deconstructor of fun, and then on the back it says "mice nuts." <laughs> what? what is this? So, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, I, so I'm going to bring that to the the turkey turkey event. Uh, um, yeah, so I, I'm I got my own swag. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a limited run of one, right? And uh, and so I think I'm going to buy one for all y'all. Um, but but put put appropriate quotes on it. This is my Christmas right. gift. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm very excited for next year and the year after for console gaming, as I've said before in the podcast, but uh, clearly like the, the game slate is, 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 is awesome. And, uh, and we should see um, back to form uh, for console business next two years. So very excited. So stay tuned. All right, guys, that's it for the year. It's a wrap. Uh, We'll see you back in January Um, and put on your calendar March uh, for the Turkey event. All right. right. Happy holidays. Bye, guys. Take care. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.